Our text this morning comes from Revelation 21, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Hear now God's holy word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision of the heavenly city, uh, Mount Zion, which is the church, which is the company of your people, which is your bride, your body. And we pray that we would be inspired to love her and defend her and labor with her all of our days as you transform us from glory to glory. So continue your transforming work in her. And so as we ponder these things today, Deliver us from distraction, deliver me from error, from every thought that might distract or, or remove uh, or, or hinder the Spirit's work in us as we study these things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As we move through this year, 2021, I can't help but think back to where we were this time last year as a congregation, as a church, not just where we were in terms of... Um, spirit and joy, maturity and fellowship, but where we were physically, you remember this time last year in July, we were in a barn, a, an unair-conditioned barn, a very warm place. Uh, throughout the hot summer, we endured in, in worshiping together, and we were absolutely thrilled to be together. We were delighted to be together at the Lord's table, opening the scriptures, singing psalms together, seeing each other, fellowshipping with each other. While it felt like the whole world was disintegrating around us, we had each other and we had that, uh, we had that barn. I know a lot of children are always, already looking back nostalgically to those days uh, in, in the barn. Um, there was a point, though, where we were looking for a place to move into where I started to wonder, is this really going to work out? Are we going to find a place to worship inside? And it seemed like nothing was coming together. Every time we explored a property, we would get close to signing the lease and there would be some town ordinance, there would be some mitigating factor, there was something that made it impossible for us to use that place as a worship space, to use that place as a sanctuary. And I started to wonder, are we ever going to find anything? I, I thought, well, I guess we better get used to this barn because this is where we're going to be for a while. And it was very hard for me to see down the road to what was next. I couldn't quite picture it. And then the Lord led us to this place. Some of you may not know that this room housed an Islamic mosque for many years. When we first walked through this place, the uh, floors were covered in this eye-meltingly red, eye-watering red carpet. The walls were neon green and neon orange. In that back corner over there, there was a large, weird, altar thing that uh, was, was, was stuck in the corner. For years, these walls echoed with idolatrous prayers to Allah, and now God's word is read in this place out loud, and people sing psalms. What a transformation of not only paint and carpet, but of uh, what happens here. But, but when we first walked through it, I said, I can't, I can't see it. I don't know what this place is going to become. I, I can't picture it. I couldn't see the transformation in my mind. And now I'm very thankful for this place, but, but we still know it's, it's only temporary. We're looking down the road to building our own sanctuary. And what that's going to look like is still 
you know, it's still, still a mystery. It's how are we going to get there? Some people have this amazing gift to be able to look past the way a property is at present, to, to be able to see into the future and see past the poor design choices, to see past the neon green paint, to see past the bad carpet, the wear and tear, to see past all of that and to visualize the potential, to, ve- to visualize what it will be. Some of you have this ability to put together in your mind what something can look like when you're done with it. Not all of us can do that. If you can do that, you're, you're really special. You're gifted. Because if you're like me, you need a picture. You need a drawing. You need something to look at that demonstrates, oh, this is what can be done. Here's what can be accomplished. Here's how this is going to look in the future. I need that help. And at the end of the book of Revelation, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus gives us. He gives us a picture of the church, as she will be. Not necessarily as we view her in history now, in time, but he gives us a picture of how heaven views the church. To give this perspective that Jesus himself has of his own bride. Because honestly, if you were living in the first century when this letter was written, when this uh, writing of John was delivered to the churches, if you were living in the first century, and if you were a member of the of the original audience of this book, it would be very difficult for you to use words like glory and beauty and purity when describing the church. In fact, this book begins with Jesus addressing all of the muck and the junk and the corruption that's already populating the church in the first century. What do we get at the start of Revelation? When you start reading this book, you hear Jesus saying to the seven pastors of the seven churches of Asia Minor, you hear Jesus saying things like, you've left your first love. You're tolerating idolatrous heresy." You are wretched and you are miserable and you are blind and poor and naked. You are tolerating sexual immorality. Those were the things that Jesus said. So if you're a member of one of those churches experiencing persecution from the outside, from the synagogues, from the local authorities, as well as corruption from the inside, you have uh, maybe bad teachers or or people who, who strive for preeminence, or, or difficult people inside the church, you may have a very dim view of the prospects of the future of the church. It would be easy for you to feel puny and hopeless and pessimistic about the future of the church. Imagine what it would be like for those Christians if we were just take a handful of Christians from Sardis or or Ephesus, or Thyatira, just take a handful and, and, and give them a window into the future and to allow them to see uh, worshipers flooding into worship in a great stone cathedral, or give them a little glimpse of a, co- a, a packed concert hall listening to Handel's Messiah, or, or to give them the ability to see us today where we can proclaim the name of Jesus openly in the marketplace without fear of persecution. Uh, physical persecution, to show them that little glimpse of those things, that would encourage them immensely. They would say, oh, okay, this is going to work out. The church has a long, beautiful, influential future, and they could be at rest. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't show them those things, and that's not how he does things necessarily. Instead, he gives them these visions, this book of Revelation, written in a poetic language of symbol. I mean, he could, he could have used flat prose. He could have just said, listen, there are going to be a lot of people in the church for a very long time, 
and the church is going to be really influential in the world. It's going to be great. You'll love it. And then he could have closed the book, but that's not what he does. Instead, he goes about it in a more artistic way, and he paints this symbolic picture of what the church is in all of her glory and how heaven views her. What we're about to read and what we're about to study is a picture of the present day holy city of Jerusalem, which is another way to talk about the church. The church is the present city of Jerusalem. How do we know? How do we know that when the Bible talks about the heavenly Jerusalem, we're talking about the church? Well, uh, what we're about to read, the angel calls this city the bride. When he refers to the city, he says, this city is the lamb's wife. Who is the bride of the lamb? Who is, who is the wife of, of Christ? Well, it's, it's the church. And not only that, Hebrews 12, 22 calls the church the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, at the end of Hebrews, we read, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Those are all different ways of speaking about the church. The church is Mount Zion. The church is the people of God. The church is the city of God. The church is the heavenly Jerusalem. So when we're reading about the city, we're reading about the church. This is the bride. This is the bridal city. Over the last couple of chapters, we've seen the final judgment of the harlot city, the apostate city, the old Jerusalem. And the destruction of that city clears the way for the elevation of the bridal city. So the harlot city is brought down so that the bridal city can be elevated and enter uh, her union with her groom. Uh, so so the, the church has been elevated. We have seen over the last couple of chapters, Satan bound so that the gospel can go forth in great power for an extended period of time, a, a, an innumerable, uh, vast expanse of time. And then we read that Satan will be, will be unleashed. He'll be turned loose at the end of this age so that he may gather whatever followers he has left in the world and set himself up for a great epic final defeat. Then comes the final judgment and the institution of a new heavens and new earth where finally heaven and earth will be in full agreement. And that's where we stopped last week. Uh, there should be a chapter break. If, you're, if you have your Bible open and you're looking at Revelation 21, there ought to be a, some kind of transition or some kind of chapter break after verse 8 because we're starting a new section of material. John has been writing about events from the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD all the way up through the final judgment. That's what he's been doing so far. And now the angel pulls John back into his present and, and pulls him back to see his present reality. So we've been studying over the last couple of chapters, we've been studying about things in John's future and in our future, but now we're returning to John's day and we know that because we're about to get a number of statements once again about how the, the, the things that he is writing about, particularly with regard to the final convulsions of the city of Jerusalem, those things are about to come to pass. So what we're about to read about is not heaven, but a vision of the church. Well, let me answer this question. How do we know that 
that John is pulling us back from the future, back into his present day? How do we know that the angel is, is bringing him back to look at the church in time in history? Well, we've just read about the final judgment at the beginning of chapter 21. And after the final judgment, there are no more nations. And all of the abominable things have been put in the lake of fire and a lid has been put over the top of it. But in the text we're about to read, there are nations. The nations are walking in the light of the city. The kings are bringing their glory into the city. The kings are bringing their honor into the city and her waters go out to heal the nations. So there are still nations. There's still uh, this, this separation between this city and the kingdoms of the world. Also, abominable things are being kept out of this city, actively uh, being kept out. The city is being guarded. The city has gates. So, so it makes sense that we're looking at now um, uh, the church as she is in history. Last week, we saw the fullness of the union of heaven and earth but now we're coming back to the perspective of the church in history. And we need this perspective. We need to be able to see this potential in her because when you look at the church at various points in history, when you look at various branches of the church today, her glory can be difficult to envision. It can be hard to see her beauty. So let's walk through this scene and look at this description of, of the church. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The angel who is serving as John's tour guide here is one of the angels who poured out one of the seven bowls of wrath during the bowl judgments we read earlier. And these bowls of wrath, John deliberately describes them. He purposely describes them as plagues. He calls them plagues because he's drawing our attention back to the Exodus and back to the way that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians on their way out the door. You remember before the Passover, God commanded every woman of Israel. This is what he said. He said, ask of your neighbor, namely of her who dwells near your house, ask for them articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So the women before the Passover, before they leave Egypt, they ask for all of the riches of their neighbors. They just ask for it and the Egyptians give it to them because they want them to go at this point. If you just get out of here, we'll stop having these plagues and maybe we can get back to normal life. So they turn over their riches to the Israelites and those riches, those precious metals and textiles are what go into the construction of the tabernacle. God's house is built on the spoils of his enemies. Now it happens much later in David's time. In David's day, he goes around defeating the Philistines who were Egyptians. They were uh, dispossessed, dislocated, uh, uh, relocated uh, Egyptians. David goes around defeating the Philistines. He gathers up all their wealth 
and he gives that to his son Solomon, this, this great wealth of precious metals and resources out of which Solomon constructs the temple. Once again, God's house is built out of the spoils of his enemies. Fast forward a few more generations. The spoils of Babylon and Persia are used to build the second temple. We read the book of Esther. Haman laid a plot against the Jews to plunder them and to take their lives, but God reverses things so that the Jews are the plunderers of those who seek their lives. And out of that abundance, out of the spoils of Persia and Babylon, come the raw materials that help to build the temple, the second temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Over and over and over, you see this pattern. God's house is built out of the spoils of his enemies. Each time the old creation is spoiled, the old order, the old world is humiliated and all of the riches go into the construction of the new world, the new creation, the new house is built out of the spoils of the old. Even Noah plundered the pre-flood world and brought its riches and knowledge and skills and wisdom and history and animals over into the post-flood world. The new world was built on the spoils of the old world. So now this angel who poured out the bowls of plagues on the old harlot city, the old world, he, this angel, takes John and shows him what those spoils have built. Remember back in chapter 18, how the merchants wept over the spoiled riches. Twice they lament the great wealth of the city has been spoiled. The great wealth of the city has been laid waste. And there's a long list of materials there that when we read that, we said, that looks just like the list of materials that went into building the tabernacle. That looks just like the list of materials that went into building the temple. And now we have these treasures, these treasures of old Jerusalem, over here in chapter 21, we find a golden, bejeweled city. God's house is once again built on the spoils of his enemies. As we read this long list of, of precious metals and gemstones, we have to ask, what do these represent? What do these mean? These are not instructions for how to build a specific church building. And as we're going to see as we get into this, that would be quite impossible. It would be, I don't, we could not get a building loan to do something like this, even if we tried. This is very similar to the way that Ezekiel was shown an incredible vision of a heavenly temple, which was never built on earth. It was never realized literally on, on earth, but Ezekiel has this vision of the dominant formidable presence of the temple and the activity of the temple and the life that the temple was to give the nations, he gets this vision to show uh, how the temple was to function on earth. Heaven's temple was reflected through earthly architecture, yes, but also through life and the functions of the, of the temple. So th this is the same thing that's going on now. We look at this vision of the church and we see that these materials and these riches and these glories are primarily representative. They are symbolic things. Well, what do they represent if they're representative, if they're symbolic? Well, let's think, what precious things have been plundered from the harlot city and have been given to the bride city? There's some very simple connections to make. We read that the gates of this city are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. So this city, this church, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem has great continuity with old faithful Israel. 
The church is an heir to all of God's promises and all of his dealings with faithful Israel, which means their history is our history. Their oracles, uh, the oracles of God, the law, the, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, all of it has been taken from them and handed to the church. The Hebrew scriptures are our scriptures with a perfect continuity from the prophets to the gospels to the epistles. It's one Bible. One of the best things you could ever do is take that page that's in between Malachi and Matthew and carefully uh, uh, pull it out. Uh, there's one Bible, one continuity, one, one, uh, one set of scriptures. I read something from a liberal mainline uh, Christian this past week who was vexed and wondering if perhaps the church's use of the Hebrew scriptures was cultural appropriation. You know, how, how people dress up, you know, if, you, if I were to wear a, oh boy, a kimono that, that I'm somehow making fun of um, uh, Japanese, or if I wear a sombrero, I'm making fun of, uh, of, of Mexicans, or, or somehow using, using their culture in a, um, in a, a way to mock that's what I think that's what cultural appropriation is. And so that maybe we should leave the Hebrew scriptures alone because they're not ours. That was the, that was the idea. We're stealing someone else's heritage and culture. Well, no, Jesus took the scriptures and he gave them to us. He took them and gave them to the church. The Hebrew scriptures point irrefutably to Jesus as God's Messiah and Israel rejected him. So they rejected God's word. Romans 15, 4 says the things that were written before are written for us. He's writing to the church in Rome and he says, these scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures are ours. You are Abraham's seed. Uh, you are children of Abraham. So um, the new Jerusalem is built on the foundation of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles who are in agreement. They are in alignment. There's not disagreement. So all of the treasures of the old covenant are taken as spoils to build the church. Ultimately, what are, what are the gemstones? What are the precious metals? What are, what are the living stones of, the, of, this new, of this new city? The people are plundered from the harlot city and, 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 and given to the church. The people from the harlot city were plundered on Pentecost. Gentiles are plundered from Satan's kingdom. You and I, we are the spoils, the trophies of the victory of Christ in his conquest over the nations, which he puts into his city as living stones. There are 12 gates. There are 12 angels guarding the gates of this city. When you read about Ezekiel's heavenly temple, there are a lot of doors and there are a lot of passages and there are a lot of uh, 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 entrances and they're guarded. Uh, gates and doors play heavily into the construction of God's house because there were things that Israel was required to keep out and there were some things inside which they were required to protect. Exercising good gatekeeping is a requirement for stewards of God's house. Adam was a poor gatekeeper. He did a really bad job at keeping God's house. In the letters to the churches at the beginning of this book, one of the big problems that Jesus points out with these seven churches is they aren't exercising church discipline. They're not faithfully guarding the doors. And Jesus stresses the vital importance of guarding the gates. So this city has gates, three facing every direction of the compass. All four corners of the world have access to flood into her, 
But there are also angels guarding the gates. Well, who are the angels? Well, you go back to the seven letters to the seven churches, and the angels are the pastors. The word angel is just messenger. So the angels of the churches are pastors, and so uh, it is to pastors, elders, God primarily gives responsibility to keep out the ugly things. And even this city has gates, and it has guards at those gates to keep out uh, the abominable things, to keep out the destroyer. Let's continue in verse 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So the city is a perfect cube. The, the, the city is in a square, three-dimensional. There are no perfect squares or generally perfectly straight lines in nature. In creation, when God creates the world, everything is wavy and rambling and wild. That's how he created the earth. But when we look to heaven's architecture, we see straight lines and corners. We see, we see things that can be measured. So man, following the order of heaven, imposes order on earth. That is our job. We don't lament that we're taking the earth and we're refashioning it, that we're, we're, we're making it something that is orderly and useful to man. That's what we're here to do. And so uh, we impose heaven's order on earth, and that's why we make corners and straight lines and straight roads and, and square houses, uh, because uh, we're, that's, that's what you know, every time we put our hands to something, that's, that's how it ends up working out. This city um, is, is then uh, the church, which is the preeminent place where heaven's order is experienced, where heaven's order can be observed. It should be the church, which perfectly reflects heaven's orderliness. This city is a perfect cube. If we translate it into our measurements, it is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles tall. And the wall of the city is 216 feet high. We're going to look at the wall in just a minute. But for these dimensions, 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 miles, for comparison, if you're just trying to figure out how long is that, that's from uh, Florida to Arizona up to the middle of Canada, and it's also 1,500 miles high, that's orbit, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> you're, you're getting on the way to the moon if you're going 1,500 miles high. Um, that, is, that are those dimensions. Now, um, again, that's not something where we're going to replicate architecturally, not in our lifetime anyway. But we're being given an image of a city 
that's so far beyond imagination. How can you wrap your mind around one city that is, um, is that enormous, that gigantic? We're, we're given a city so far beyond imagination in size and scope, so gigantic that, that when you realize, okay, this is the church, then any theology of despair or any eschatology of, of defeat Please, in the face of this, this is God's view of the church in the world. Look at the size of the presence she is to have in the world. If there were a city, if there were an actual city in the world that was that big, it would affect flight patterns. Uh, it would affect the weather. There's, there's nothing that would uh, not be affected. No one would be able to ignore it. And that's the position that Christ has placed his bride in the world. She cannot be dismissed or marginalized. Imagine taking a cube, a block, and putting it over North America. That is the presence of the church in the world. She is a force to be reckoned with. Her foundation stones are 12 gemstones. Well, you know the high priest's breastplate had 12 gemstones on his breastplate, each one representing a, a tribe of Israel. He wore these names and these stones over his heart as he went into the sanctuary to intercede on behalf of Israel, to work as a priest before Israel. He carried the names of Israel on his body as he stood before God. This, this is a stirring image of how our high priest, our Lord Jesus, carries our names on his chest, on himself as he comes into the presence of his Father to intercede for us. Now, these stones of the breastplate of the high priest show up in the foundation of the city. And the harlot city, remember, she had stones too. She, had, uh, she was decked with jewels, which made her attractive to her multiple lovers. But the beauty of this, this city has a beauty, but it's a genuine beauty that is symbolized by her singular devotion to one lover. And she is established, she is built on the foundation of that intimate sanctuary communion with him. It's as if the high priest's breastplate is laid flat and, and the stones are spread out and the city is built on that foundation. The walls are jasper. Jasper, if you've ever seen it, is flaming red. Uh, it's a flaming red gem. Uh, it has yellow and orange streaks through it. God tells Zechariah that he will be a wall of fire around his people. So these are, these are walls of jasper. They're walls that look like fire. And uh, God tells Zechariah, I'll be a wall of fire and my glory is in your midst. The, glory, the, 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 the walls don't have to be as tall as the city because the fire of God's presence is surrounding the city. It's, God's presence is enough. You, you don't mess with her. You'll get, you'll get burned. She has walls of fire. The gates of the city are pearls. At the foundation of the city are gemstones from the land, but the gates are made with gems from the sea. Um, we, we have always made this distinction between land and sea, Jew and Gentile. And so the, the glory of the Gentile nations are included in this city. Um, the gates of the city, he says, weren't made of pearls. They were pearls. That's what he said. Each individual gate was of one pearl. That's what it says. Someone suggested that all 12 gates here might be each a massive pearl that are rolled in front of the entrance and then rolled away, reminding us of the tomb of Jesus, reminding us of the resurrection, the fact that everyone who enters the city and everyone who inhabits it gets in the same way through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Now, uh, I'm not going to stick to that, but it's an interesting thought. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not entirely convinced, but it's something to think about, but at least to know. When we talk about pearly gates, uh, we're not talking about heaven. The pearly gates are the gates of the church, not the gates of, of heaven. That's an important uh, distinction, despite all the jokes about the pearly gates. Uh, this is the description of the church. Uh, the streets are pure gold. The only place we ever see pure gold in the Bible is in the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle and temple. Everything in the innermost sanctuary is made of gold without any impurities. But here in this city, the streets are made up of the stuff that was reserved for the innermost part of the tabernacle. So the nearness of, of God and the access to God is released out into the city. Everyone is a priest. Everyone has entrance. All the inhabitants are saints. And that's what we read in the next section. Verse 22, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The whole city is the temple. There are no veils or curtains or separations, no more ranks of holiness within the people of God. Those distinctions were useful in the old covenant to point us to the perfection of our high priest, Jesus, and to show us how far our sin has removed us from God. But now that Jesus has done his work, all the barriers are removed. The temple and the city are one. We see also that the city is not alone in the world. That's why this can't be heaven. There are other nations here. Uh, th this is a city among the nations, and she carries on commerce with the kings and the nations of the world. The kings adorn her with the glory of the nations. She is granted peace and safety by faithful kings that look out for her. The kings don't come in to plunder her, but to beautify her. Her art and her music and her architecture are all enriched with and by her interactions with the culture. She also disciples the nation. She shows them how to live together, how to practice a Christian way of life. She has her own calendar for the world to follow in their celebrations. It says her gates are never shut. It's because there's constant traffic in and out flowing in and out of the city. The church and the nations exist in a mutually beneficial relationship. I'm going to grab the first five verses of chapter 22 because it's continuing this description. Chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Water flows out of the temple city, out of the church to heal the world. And there are trees to feed the world. God communicates his love to us through tangible things, through water and wine and bread. There's always this tendency to think that you can enjoy God immediately and that you 
ought to be able to enjoy him immediately apart from his gifts, but he's always feeding us and he's always giving us good things to rejoice over and give thanks for. He gives us good things and enjoyment of those good things is, is, by, is by appreciating the giver and loving the giver by enjoying and receiving the good gifts. And so he continues that through his church. There are 12 fruits for each month of the year, uh, 12 fruits for 12 months in a city with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels with 12 tribal names written on them. There are 12 uh, foundation stones, 12 apostles. This is all a perfection and completion. 12 cycles of the moon make up one year. One lap around the sun includes 12 phases of the moon. So all the seasons, all the months of the year are covered with food and protection and and, and, and the glory of this city. This city gives a calendar and a routine and a rhythm to all of life. The inhabitants of the city have the name of God on their forehead, just like the priests did. They're all priests. And the whole place is full of light. If you want illumination, if you want to be able to see clearly, if you want to be able to think clearly, you have to come to the light which is in the church. The closer you get to her, the more light you have. Or else you'll be stranded in darkness. You leave her and you leave life and you leave light. So let's step back quickly and look at this whole scene, this whole thing that we just read. The angel has taken John up on a high mountain to show him heaven's perspective on the church. This is what the church looks like to heaven. Here she is in all of her formidable glory, her influence, her gifts of healing and provision and wisdom, her position among the nations of men. But what usually happens when we go up a high mountain in the Bible and then come back down? We, we go back down the mountain and we see a disconnect between what is at the bottom of the mountain and what's at the top of the mountain. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He has fellowship with God. He hears the very voice of God. Moses receives God's law. He receives instructions for the tabernacle. He's gathered into God's glory cloud. That's what he gets up at the top of the mountain and then Moses comes down the mountain and the people are dancing the Watusi around the uh, golden calf. I don't even know what the Watusi is, but they were dancing it around the golden calf. The scene at the bottom of the mountain is a striking contrast to Moses' experience at the top of the mountain. And so the duty of faithful men is to make application of God's law, establish the kingdom, construct the tabernacle according to heaven's design, all of this work is to make the bottom of the mountain look like what Moses saw at the top of the mountain. Later in the Gospels, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain, and they were able to see Jesus in all of his heavenly glory. Moses appeared. Elijah appeared. The Father spoke from heaven, declaring his pleasure in his Son. Peter said, let's camp out here forever. Let's just stay. Jesus talked about his restoration of all things, and he talked about his own imminent suffering. That happens at the top of the mountain. When they go down the mountain, they're immediately faced with a horrible situation. There's a demon-possessed child and apostles who can't do anything about it. Jesus rebukes the apostles. He casts out the demon. He cures the boy. Jesus accomplishes at the bottom of the mountain what he said he would do at the top of the mountain. And he makes the bottom of the mountain reflect the reality that he spoke of at the top. So now we go up this mountain with John and we read this description of the church. And our first response when we read this description is, really? Is this really the church? Because the, the experience that we have 
many times doesn't look a lot like this description. Does the church really shine with God's glory? Is she really like a pure bride sparkling with gemstones? Does she really disciple the nations? Does, do the kings really bring their glory in? Does she really keep out all abominations? Well, no, it doesn't appear that way. Not only that, but we could start to tally up all the ways that the church has done the opposite of all those things. There are churches that promote abomination. There are periods of church history where it seems like darkness is more prevalent than light. So, so how does this work? How does this description fit with reality? What do we say to that? Well, notice that the city is descending. She is in process. She hasn't fully descended in such a way that this reality is universally recognized. She is descending and she continues to descend until earth and heaven are one. Until that day, she descends and she makes her presence known at various times. She makes her presence known today on the Lord's day. Whenever we use the keys of the kingdom to admit or to protect, when she speaks prophetically to the nations, we see her more fully and more really. But if you observe that the church on earth doesn't look like the church, the city in Revelation 21, well, yeah, it's because the church has not fully descended to earth. Abominations are present now, but one day they will be finally and fully evicted. Sin, corruption, and, and false teaching right now tarnish the, the brightness of her gold and gemstones, but one day she will be ablaze with the light of God's glory. Her influence grows progressively and increasingly. Satan, Satan was kicked out of heaven, and so he falls from heaven and he crashes to earth. Uh, the church doesn't fall from heaven because she wasn't kicked out. She descends gracefully, gradually to earth. Trust the process. Trust that this is what God is doing. Trust also this is what he's doing with you. You are also in process. You aren't finished either. We are all gradually, progressively being sanctified. So don't get overly frustrated with the church's progress or with your own, knowing that you and I are going to be transformed, trust in the work that God is doing in all of us now and in the church. So seeing the end result of this process for the church, we trust that this is the work. This is what God is transforming her into. This is what God is doing now to despise her or to hate her because she's not fully what she will be is to hate the bride that Jesus has chosen the one he's glorifying, the one he's beautifying, adorning in history on earth through time. And as we say all that, we have to admit that she has played a real and vital role in human history. She has, in fact, discipled kings and nations. She has done that for a fact. She has instructed the kingdoms of the world in humility before God, in mercy and justice. No, she's not been always successful, but she has had many, many, many successes. So we see this image of the church. We say, well, that's what the church will be, um, but, but, but are we going to get there? To say yes is not just positive thinking. It's not just hoping for the best. It's believing the promises of God and seeing the blueprint of what the church is called to be. You and I might have any number of ideas of what we think the church is supposed to be. That's fine. But we see here the end product, and that sets the trajectory of our mission and a standard of measurement of our of our obedience to Christ as we follow this, as, as we're faithful. It also gives us comfort, 
when things are pretty dark, when we're feeling puny and outnumbered and it feels like everything is closing in and everything's falling apart, this is a corrective to say, oh wait, yeah, this is who we are. This is how Jesus views his bride. Our attitude is adjusted and we give thanks for the Spirit's work. Last thought. There's one more great high mountain scene in the Bible. Remember, Satan took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, Matthew says, the kingdom and the glory. And and Satan said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, away with you, Satan. I worship God alone. Now John is taken up to a great high mountain. John sees the glory of the kingdoms flowing into this city. Jesus didn't take Satan's shortcut. Jesus gave his life for the bride. He redeemed her. He washed her. And that's how he gets the glory of the kingdoms. This is how Jesus gains the kingdoms of the world, through his church, through her light, through her attractive, sparkling presence in the world, through her healing rivers, through her nourishing fruit, by the guardians of her gates, keeping out the abominable things and protecting the precious things. You see, all she has to do to gain the glory of the kingdoms and for the kingdoms to come into her, all she has to do is be who she is to be who God has created her to be for his son. That's how the nations are converted. That's how in history the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus, by the church being the church. That is what preserved her through dark times, by being the church. That's what preserved us last year. What do we do? I don't know what to do. Let's just be the church. How about we just be the church and see what the Lord does? And in fact, he blesses that by just being the church. Just do what we do. So... Pray for her, submit to her, defend her, and by loving her, she becomes what she will be. You love her into this. You love her into what Christ has called her to be and how he sees her. Love her, don't reject her or despise her. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this vision of your church, and we pray that we would indeed move closer and closer to her light, bring the glory of the nations into her, and rejoice in her and with her all of our days. Uh, kindle in all of us a, uh, uh, an attitude of defense for holy things and for pure things, and uh, continue to uh, bring this city down to earth uh, more and more, even in our day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.